Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Hunger for Wholeness. My name is Jillian Langford, and I am the producer of this podcast. Today, our hosts, doctor and sister, Ilya Delio, and our co-host, Gabby Sloan, sit down with Dr. Matt Siegel. And let me tell you, Matt Siegel is an impressive, impressive man. He is a professor for the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He has a background in process theology, and he joins Ilya and Gabby for a conversation about just that. He reveals to us that he grew up in South Florida, where he first read Pierre Terre de Chardin, and he has been on a process theology kick ever since. In the first part of this two-part conversation, Matt, Ilya, and Gabby talk about why it's important for God to be understood through relationships, what's compelling about a God that is incomplete without our love, they discuss good and evil and how we can reconcile this chaos, and I want you to take a guess before we get into this interview, what does it mean for God to have a shadow? You'll hear all of this discussion and more in the first part of this two-part episode with Dr. Matt Siegel, Ilya Delio, and Gabby Sloan. You know, the title of our podcast is A Hunger for Wholeness on Science, Religion, and the Unity of Love. And you are a process philosopher, process theologian, all things process. What drew you to process philosophy and what do you think process thought contributes to a hunger for wholeness today? Mm, thanks for that question, Ilya. Um, I've always been one for whom the surface, the sort of first appearance of things was not enough to satisfy my my hunger, hunger for reality, I guess, kind of was a strange kid who was, you know, contemplating death and the origin of the universe and these things. But when I came into my teenage years, as I began to study science more, physics and biology in particular, it became more difficult for me to believe in the form of religion and, and the idea of God that, say, my, my mom believed in. And so I became a kind of obnoxious atheist for a few years there. And it wasn't until my late teens and early 20s that I began to discover another way of understanding religion and maybe, say, the more esoteric and mystical and contemplative sides of, of religion and was exposed to the process approach, generally speaking. I think I actually read Teilhard de Chardin before Whitehead. He's a little bit more fun to read, hmm. easier to understand as well. And just this vision of, of a God, this vision of divinity as involved in the world and accessible to our own experience and also responsive to our longing, our hunger, right? And so once I got a taste for this new way of understanding God as part of the world process, as it were, not just part, but in a way, the whole of the world process, then uh, I was hooked. So hmm. I got more into my head in my graduate studies and in and, and my scholarship today, but certainly Teilhard de Chardin was there in the beginning. Hmm. That's actually wonderful to know. Did you grow up in California or? I grew up in South Florida. Florida. Oh, I see. Yeah. And they read Teilhard in Florida. That's 
No, I, uh, <laughs> so I moved to California for graduate school. I uh, see. 2008 and uh, started studying Tehard at that point. I see. So what you're saying here about, you know, what attracted you to process thinking is if I hear this correctly, there's a deep God question at the heart of it. In other words, not a sky God, you know, or the, uh, the elderly grandfather God, the guy in the sky type thing, but a power or a whole that's deeply involved in the overall process of life. Now, Whitehead, if just maybe you could help clarify us. Did Whitehead hold to a personal God or what was God for Whitehead? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, what he believed personally, I'm not really sure because in his philosophy, he's quite insistent that he's dealing with a concept of God. Right. Which is supposed to play a certain function in an overall scheme, a cosmology. And he really wants to say, you know, the function of God in the world in the context of his metaphysics, it's distinct from religious emotion. And it's in the context of religious emotion that, you know, this idea of a personal God would come up. And so I definitely think Whitehead had what we would refer to as a personal relationship to the mm-hmm. divine. But it might be something his philosophy lacks is, you know, he wasn't really trying to give rise to a new religion, though, of course, process theologians have, I think, very fruitfully brought his thought in that direction because mm-hmm. uh, it can be a seed for and it can inspire uh, religious life and religious emotion and he he admitted that in his in his writing but you know the closest i would say he comes to admitting a, a personal dimension to the divine nature would be in in what he calls the consequent nature of god which in some sense is bound up with in a way not that dissimilar from Teilhard in the human being and our human response to consciousness of the whole the whole of the universe mm-hmm. and the whole of of history and evolution that in some sense god becomes a person through the human being and through our, mm-hmm. our human consciousness right mm-hmm. you know it's interesting this question of god's involvement still is sort of runs a wide spectrum of things you know when we use that language of god and we speak about god deeply relational I myself have been grappling with these issues and reflecting on a new paradigm that's very consonant with process theism on relational holism Mm. and God as the whole of the whole, so to speak, you know, the depth of the whole or the ground of the whole. And therefore, the name God, I think, sometimes throws us off because we use it as a proper name. Like you're Matt, I'm Ilya, and that's God, you know. <laughs> but the name is a name that points to something that is, on one hand, utter mystery. I mean, it's incomprehensible. And, uh, and on the other hand, it's something that pertains to everything, you know, uh, to the whole itself. And so it's not that God is in relationship, is that God is relationship, you know, in some, in some ways that God is the relationship of relationships. And so it's very, I'm, I'm becoming really intrigued by this, by the question of God in our own age, because I think it's one of the areas, I mean, when we look at the world and the conflicts of the world, 
there's kind of a God problem behind many of the conflicts. The way we understand God really shapes or or not, even if we have no God, even that too is a God's position. <laughs> and so it does shape everything about us, you know, how we are seeing ourselves in relationship to one another and the world itself. So I am interested, I am very fascinated by Whitehead's, that pithy saying he has you know, God affects the world as the world affects God. You had something similar, you know, that God is involved in the world. And Teilhard had the same idea that, you know, God is not an apathetic God. This is not a God who like lacks feelings or doesn't really care what's going on. God is deeply involved. You know, this name that points to the allness or the wholeness uh, is deeply involved in everything that's taking place. So I think one of the things, and I've wondered, you know, what if we were just that point alone, if we were to come to a collective consensus that our actions, our thoughts, everything about us makes a radical difference to God. We either enhance godly life, which is entangled with our lives, or we diminish that life. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things I'd, I'd love to amplify there that, that you've shared. Yeah, you know, God traditionally is thought in terms of substance or being, being as such, not a being, a being among beings, uh, right. the ground of being, as Tillich put it, or as, as you reiterated, the whole of whole, wholeness, as you put it. And so, you know, that helps, you know, that when we try to be what cataphatic about God to give positive characteristics for the divine nature, but then we also have to have the apophatic and a sort of negative theology talking about sort of God in absentia and all the ways that God can't be characterized. And when we think of God as a person, to go back to the prior question, we have to understand more deeply what we even mean by a human person, first of all, because we're profoundly relational beings, right? You don't get a person, one person in a vacuum. We exist in relationship. I mean, literally, persona, the Latin is, is a mask through which sound passes, right? And so there's mm -hmm. a kind of emptiness until you get a resonance between more than one person. And I think, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity was maybe partially attempting to get into this sense in which God is is a relationship among persons. And but God just as relationship, I think, really speaks to to our modern and post postmodern world more so than imagining God as a being, because that just invites a sense of separateness. And then, you know, even when God is not talked about, or when you're in a, at least supposedly secular context, there's always something functioning in the background as, you know, the very condition making our relations possible as, as political animals or as, as people trying to resolve conflicts, the only way to do so would be to appeal to something greater than any of us in particular, or as individuals, individual people or individual cultures, etc. And what are we appealing to when we do that? Even in a secular context, we could call it whatever we want, but you know, God might not be a bad word for that. And the idea that God needs us, right, I think is a very radical idea, theologically speaking, because there's one view of, of religion that it's supposed to provide us with a sense of, yeah, like a sky father that can fix it all for us, that can step in to make it okay. 
And in the absence of, of that, you might think, well, what's the point of even believing in God then? If God can't perform miracles, if God's power isn't a power to intervene in the world when things go wrong, then what's the point? But I think there is, for me, and I think many people drawn to process theology, there's something compelling about a God that is, in a sense, incomplete without our love, without our loving action in the world as a result of love for God, and that that is what brings both the divine and creation closer to completion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I totally agree. Gabby, are you, how are you on that idea? I really like that idea, actually. I mean, also the people who say like, you know, oh, what's the point of God if God can't perform miracles? If God is relationships, then I mean, relationships are miracles in and of themselves, I think, you know, like the love between two people and the things that they're willing to do for each other or three people or however many people like I would do so many things for my friends and stuff like it's devotional. And then like the ancient Greeks talking about like, I can't remember who, but he defined a person as uh, an animal whose nature is to live in a polis, to live in a small city you know, with each other. I don't know. I think we're really called to be relational, like, cause we're in the image of God. God is relationships. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Maybe we can say, a relationship is a miracle. It's true. And in that sense, God inspires miracles by allowing us to enter deeply into relationship, perhaps. Yeah, I like that idea as well. If we think that a miracle is, you know, the suspension of the known and something new, you know, emerges in the moment, a relationship, we take relationships for granted, of course, you know, we think that they've always been this way, but really relationality, relationships as you know, concrete persons in relationship are always, in a sense, in an openness of dynamic newness. You know, there's something because you can't say from one second to the next <laughs> what's going to happen in that relationship. And so uh, I kind of like that, that idea that relationality as miracle in itself <laughs> without having to look for other miracles, you know. We're always looking for something extraordinary. That's what I think sometimes we miss the extraordinary in the ordinary, you know, which is in a sense what we're talking about here. There's another thing you mentioned, Matt. I want to just follow up on that. God is incomplete, you said, without our participation. Now, that's a very, I like that idea, but I think it's very radical. And it's also, I've, I've wondered, honestly, I've wondered about the incarnation, You know, we always have this whole story around how Jesus came to save us. (laughs) But what if it's really the an incomplete God longing for completion? You know, maybe maybe that's what the whole thing is about. You know, do you think we've we've misread a few things in the Christianity? Yeah. I mean, the great thing about the Bible is there's so many ways to read it. And it's so Carl Jung has this text that he wrote uh, in the midst of an illness. He had like a fever and and. um, he wrote Answer to Job. And uh, in that book, he basically says that, you know, Yahweh is making this deal with Satan and testing Job to see if he'll go over to the to Satan's side or stay with God. And Job is faithful. But the way that Jung tells this story is that in that moment, Yahweh realized that this human being was morally superior. Because what kind of a God, Jung asks, would subject a human being to this trial? And for Jung, and he's speaking in a psychological way here mm-hmm. about the role that religion plays in the human psyche, 
he says that it's this event that necessitates the incarnation. Yahweh had to become Christ, had to incarnate to become human in order to become more moral, like to be able to achieve the type of love that Joe showed in mm-hmm. not betraying God despite being basically tortured by God. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Have you done a lot with Jung? It sounds Yes, definitely. Oh, that's really interesting because I only recently have entered into Jung's world of religion or religious ideas. And I find them very fascinating. Are you familiar with Carl Jung, Gabby, the psychiatrist? I've heard him mentioned in a few of these podcasts, but yeah. I have not gotten a chance to read him myself. Yeah, really a fascinating thinker. Insofar, he was really grappling with, I mean, the difficulties of our age, human neuroses, literally, you know, and in a sense, looking to diagnose, you know, what is about us that is unreconciled. And I think he, if I understand correctly, he puts the burden on sort of our old interpretations of Christianity and our old religious symbols that no longer work. He says, you know, we need a symbolic death (laughs) and new symbols to really animate our lives. But if I understand that thing on Job, you know, in his answer to Job, it's like he almost blames evil on God, you know, not just, you know, it's like the unreconciled God, you know, is God's not, unconscious. Yes. Yeah. You know, is sort of the source of uh, the chaos. And it's only when we get God becomes human, can this chaos be reconciled as we become that God in our lives, you know, incarnate divinity. So he has this idea that we're divine. Do you think that we're divine? Uh, yes, but divine precisely in this this deeper sense in which you know good and evil are somehow mysteriously entwined in the divine nature, and you know different theologians have recognized this Jung in a psychological way, but you know in, in his attempt to incorporate what he calls the shadow, mm-hmm. uh, even even God has a shadow. But Schelling also a century earlier, the German idealist philosopher talked about the way in which there's an abyss in the divine nature that, in other words, there's a dark principle in God just as much as there is a light. And that in some sense, the attempt to reconcile these two opposites is what gives rise to the creation. And hmm. and, and the human being's task is to, in a way, God needs the human being to to reconcile this, this instability between light and dark. So it, it's a much more, I think, compelling story because hmm. not even God is in control. Not even God knows where it's going. And so you start to question these traditional divine attributes of omnipotence and omniscience. And Mm. I think you end up with a theology that might be more digestible to contemporary ears Mm. um, because again, it makes God more approachable, I think. And it makes the story more, more of an adventure. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I think the idea that God is not in control really frightens us, you know, it's like we need something in control. Like we want the Wizard of Oz to know where we're going down this, you know, path. And maybe that is, you know, maybe as Young and Schelling and others and Teilhard in his own way pointed out, this is not a God who's not only not in control. This is a God who needs us to be in control, to us, to, to incarnate that God. Like the control, the, the freedom, the choices are really within us. 
you know, within our realm. And it does kind of make us gods. And then there are good gods and then they're not so good. They're good human gods and they're not so good human gods, yeah. you know. And then how are we going to distinguish between, you know, someone comes and says, well, you know, hey, look, you know, I have superpower. I'm divine. I'm God. So you got to listen to me. <laughs> you know, you got to watch. And how do we know? How do we know what is a real God and what isn't? You know, what are the signs? Yeah. I mean, this is this is where love becomes uh, so important, which presupposes freedom. So you can't have love unless you also risk evil. And yeah, your your question, are we divine? And I immediately said, yes, is because for me to be divine could also lead to, you know, it could mean divine madness, you know, which is, you know, a form of exceptional experience that kind of goes off the rails a little bit. But the fact that human beings are capable of both love or goodness, as well as evil, I think is all you need to know to say that, yes, we are divine animals, as it were. Yeah. Hey, Gabby, how are you doing there? So I was thinking about like how in religion we talk about like the subjectivity of like the right thing to do. Like sometimes the right thing is one thing and sometimes it's another. And I think that with a perfect God, right, the right thing to do must always be the same. You know, there must always be a perfect solution to every perfect question and every question must be perfect which isn't like realistic. So I think like we talk about the divine realm of angels and that's, that's like a realm where every question is perfect and every answer is perfect. And like our world, God really doesn't know quite how to interact with it because it's most questions, all questions aren't perfect and our answers like have give and take. And so I think that we learn from God, like basic morality. And then God learns from us, like, complex morality if that makes sense hmm. Hmm. yeah no i like that it's interesting that jung again makes this distinction between perfection and completion that the divine might be perfect but incomplete and the completion is brought through the complexity that human freedom brings into the picture so you're thinking in concert with jung i think thank you for listening to part one of this interview with dr matt siegel you can hear the rest of the interview on our next episode, where Ilya, Gabby, and Dr. Siegel will continue this conversation about God, personhood, and process theology. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about Dr. Siegel and his work, uh, Dr. Siegel blogs at footnotes to Plato.com. That's footnotes, the number two, Plato, like the philosopher, dot com. This podcast is made possible through generous support from our friends at the Fetzer Institute. Ilya Delio was your host today, along with co-host Gabby Sloan. My name is Jillian Langford. I'm the producer of this podcast. And Kate Christensen is our fabulous social media and marketing manager. You want to stay up to date on everything Hunger for Wholeness, make sure to follow us on social media or on Instagram and Twitter as Hunger for Wholeness. And you can also become a donor and support this podcast by giving and becoming a subscriber on patreon.com. And in exchange, we'll give you a little bit of a background into the behind the scenes of what we do, how we make this podcast possible, and even let you ask some interview questions to our upcoming guests. So until next time, this has been A Hunger for Wholeness.